So before the sermon, I, ha- I need to clean up a little business with the student body here at Walla Walla University. A student came to me this week and said, I saw something in College Place and I thought of you, Pastor. And I said, well, uh, why don't you send me a picture of it? And so uh, Katie, in fact, did, and this is the picture that she sent. (laughs) Orchid show and sale. Now, for some of you, you won't understand this, and you need to know nothing about it. But this is just, huh. Uh, but this is just a, uh, a public word to the students. I would like to hear nothing of orchids ever again. <laughs> and, you know, and that's it. Done with orchids. At the end of last weekend, a feeling came over me which I would like to describe to all of you. It was first a feeling of incredible exhaustion, coupled with a feeling of great accomplishment, but together an incredible sense of affection for the pastoral staff and so many other members of this community. You see, we had just been a part of creating and caring for some 11 major events over a 48-hour period, which came on the heels of a full week of worship with so many involved, at the end of the weekend, I had this feeling of incredible exhaustion matched by accomplishment, but between it, affection for team. It was as if the credits were rolling in my heart, Henning and Lois and Troy and Chris and Jennifer and Cherise and Fred and Jason and Patty and Tommy and Annie and Emily and Timmy and Emma and David and Carson and Spencer and Tyler and Curtis and Trey and Savannah and Craig and Johanna and David and Matthew and Peter and Kurt and Nicole and Micaiah and Jamie and on the credits rolled inside my heart. Incredible affection. In fact, at the end of that week, Timmy, who gave our children's story today, who was instrumental in the week of worship, uh, we looked at each other and actually hugged each other, and the words came out of my mouth. I, I said, I love you, Timmy. I did, and we embraced one another. Have you ever had an experience in your life where you poured yourself self, selflessly into something with other human beings, And at the end of it, you felt exhausted, a sense of accomplishment, but there was a bond that happened. Have you ever felt that before? I know in church world, uh, I have experienced this feeling on many occasions over the years. I have to admit that in college, during intramurals, particular flag football, when the team would give our all bruised knees and elbows and we would end victorious, And we would hug one another, and there was affection, and we were bonded through that experience. There are times when when the last guest leaves, that Nicole and I will look at one another, exhausted but with a sense of accomplishment, and there is an affection, there is a sense of team that develops even between the two of us. I ask you, have you ever experienced that feeling? I think we often do strangely vicariously, perhaps, through being fans of sports teams. Maybe it's soccer or ice hockey or American football or swimming 
or baseball. I'm embarrassed to say, but here's my confession. There are times that I will call my dad across the country or my brother when one of our teams has just prevailed and grown men who can't spend two minutes on the phone with one another and any other occasion can go on for an hour and a half with this deep sense of shared experience about a sports team that we have nothing to do with other than pledging our loyalty. Is it just me or do some of you have this experience? We know this of the storytelling that we speak in our culture which reveals to us, I think, our humanity. Years ago, it was the A-team versus the bad guys or sneakers versus evil, or Ocean's Eleven versus the casinos, or X-Men versus high-powered enemies, or the great debaters against all odds. But think of it, even an actor and actress, when they have won the award up front, why do we have to try to shut them up? Because they go on and on speaking of everybody on the team that has been meaningful in this accomplishment. Exhaustion, great accomplishment, but in the middle of it, the affection of a group doing something together. And of course, more significant than all of these examples, to listen to a veteran speak of his or her comrades. Those human beings, they have shared an experience together of great selflessness and sacrifice. And decades later, they communicate about those brothers, about those sisters, in ways that are powerful, aren't they? There's something about being a part of a team, accomplishing something great when we give it all selflessly that causes us both fatigue and satisfaction, but in the middle, an incredible bond. It's one of the greatest things about being a human being. In the Scriptures, I think we find the greatest of all campaigns, this side of sin. First, we see it in Abraham's leadership, then in Moses, later in Joshua. This sense that there will be a group of people on a magnificent campaign that will go to a promised land and somehow this accomplishment will bring about a blessing to all the nations of the earth, all of the peoples on the planet. And we pick up our story with Joshua now in the helm. The Israelites have crossed the Jordan River and they are staring down the first major battle thereafter against Jericho. God is giving instructions. You may remember the instructions to circle the city, but included in these instructions, this footnote, which basically says, and you are not to loot. Some of the stuff will be destroyed. Some of it you won't touch at all. Much of it will go to the sanctuary. Well, it will be distributed appropriately. Don't loot. The language in Joshua 6, verse 18 goes like this. God says, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. 
no looting on this team. Well, the story goes that Israel conquers, defeats Jericho, a glorious victory. They then move on, the next city on the schedule, inferior Ai. They boldly go to take this city, and the campaign is shattered. Israel is defeated. Thirty-six men lose their lives. What has happened to our team? We discover it in Joshua 7. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. This is what went on the campaign in Jericho. Joshua goes to God and says, what has happened? This reply, the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore. And on God goes. Verse 16, early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward, and the Zerahites were chosen. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. Joseph had his, uh, Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. And Joshua confronts Achan. Verse 20, Achan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done when I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. I plundered. And what happens next, we simply cannot look away. Briefly, verse 25, all Israel stoned him. All Israel stoned him, his wife, his family. They took all the material goods. Everything was burned, a heap of stone put on top. All Israel stoned him. The Hebrew word behind the English all, do you know what it is? It means all, actually. Here is the picture. The whole community, every member of the team said, no, no, this doesn't work. Everybody said, we cannot have this. We will participate, each of us, in picking up a stone to let the world know, to let one another know that what has happened is unacceptable. So what did Achan do that was so horrific? What is his problem? What should we pay attention to in our Scripture this morning? It's an old and tired phrase, but why not? You know it. There is no I in team. There is no I in team. 
You see, Achan, against the incredible force of the greatest campaign in the history of the universe, this great team that was about saving the planet, Achan decided, no, I'm going to put myself first. In so many words, my tent, my tribe, my clan, my family, me, myself, and I, and this action, this selfishness, seeks to undermine the sweet spirit of team, and in fact, it derails them in their campaign. The first clue to us should have been the hiding, hiding things. I ask you this morning, is there anything that you are hiding? Is there anything that you're hiding from spouse, from family, from co-workers, from community? Is there anything that you're hiding? Because when we hide things, it is likely that the very thing that we are hiding is undermining the teams that we are a part of. Hiding. Not terribly long ago, there were cookies in our kitchen. It was very clear that no one in the family was to touch the cookies. But some of you know there's a little boy in our house, and he went into the kitchen and he got two cookies. And he went into his bedroom and he shut the door. He was hiding. He ate the cookies opened the door, and he came back out. Nicole said to him, did you eat the cookies? What do you mean? Well, I can see crumbs and chocolate on your mouth. Did you eat the cookies? And I said, yes. <laughs> two, I ate the, just two. I, I hate the cookies. And Nicole said to the little boy, <laughs> but everybody in the family had an agreement. This was supposed to be after dinner. The kids are, you, you've undermined everything. Oh, my friends, when we are hiding things, it is likely that we're doing damage to community. Think of the biblical record. Adam and Eve hide. Cain hides. Rachel hides. Rebecca hides. Moses hides. Saul hides. David hides. Jonah hides. Judas hides. Revelation says many hide. It's part of our human condition. We hide. Achan hides. My tent, my tribe, my clan, my family, me, myself, and I, and I'm going to hide it. And community is destroyed. Achan has what we might call a my tent mentality. A my tent mentality. Now, we have a different phrase, particularly in the business literature. You may be familiar with it. We use the word silos. Have you heard that phrase before? Creating silos in an organization. Can I talk to you for a minute this morning? Here we are gathered in this wonderful valley, Walla Walla University Church and so many other churches represented today. We welcome you. 
on the campus of Walla Walla University, Walla Walla Valley Academy, two amazing grade schools, gospel outreach, Sunbridge, so much that we do together. Can I talk to you for a minute this morning about some silos that we always have to be careful about? Here goes silo number one, generational silos. This diagram by John Atkinson has been making the rounds on social media over the last several days. An anatomy of generations in which he uses a little bit of humor to poke us where it hurts. Let's isolate first on the boomer generation. What does he say? Here are the boomers. Not the 60s. The 60s. Not like it was in the 60s. And now they're in their 60s. And of course... This is about folks that are between 50 and 70 years of age. What is he saying? Boomers, you change the world. But be careful for maybe you are having difficulty letting go of your past, letting go of the baton in order that you might hand it to the next generation. You were a generation of change, but somehow you fear allowing younger generations to step up to the plate and be a generation of change as well. Boomers today, be careful, he says. Be careful that you are not living in your own generational silo, hindering progress in the future because you don't let the younger generation have at it. It's a silo. On to my generation, the Gen Xers, Busters. We first whined about the boomers, then we wore plaid, and now we whine about the millennials. <laughs> to those of my generation, somewhere between 35 and 50, we have to be careful that we don't live in this generational silo where truly we just complain about stuff. Because the boomers ate all the food at the table and we got the scraps. And we're checked out. This is a prophetic word to us. We cannot live in our silo of complaint and successfully take the baton from previous generations and lead with confidence for the glory of God in this place. we got to be careful. Oh, and here it is. Young adults all the way down to college students. Yes, the millennials. 18 to 35. There you are, living in your new iPhone, new iPhone, new iPhone, new iPhone, new iPhone. <laughs> What's the critique? That you live because of technology in your own customized, individualized world, stepping away from community. Oh, be careful, college students, young adults that this is not a true prophecy about you. Be careful about your generational silo as well. Category number one, we have to be careful, Walla Walla community, that we do not fall into generational silos and therefore we are unwilling to in a robust way pursue the future that God has for this place. A second silo, this the conventional one that's talked about much, organizational silos. One example would look like this. We have the Walla Walla University Church. And we are consumed with our dreams and visions and the money we want to raise and the stuff we want to do. 
And then we have um, Walla, uh, Walla Walla Valley Academy just down the road. And they've got their own plans, their own dreams, their own money they're trying to raise, all the things that they want to do. And then there's Rogers Avenue School, and they're up to their important business, and they sort of get together and think about their future. And then right here, Walla Walla University. And what's the problem? Each of us in our own little institutional silo, pursuing what we claim to be God's goals with little collaboration with the others. I'm not saying this is reality. Hear me, I'm saying we better be careful that this is not reality. And even on this glorious campus, Walla Walla University, this is what the literature would say, be careful that every department, both academic and non-academic, does not end up caring only for their own. My place, my people, my money, my stuff, this is a surefire way to destroy the greatest revolution and movement in the history of mankind. Conventional silos. A third kind of silo I think we need to be careful to avoid is the personality type silo. Many of us are familiar with the Myers-Briggs categories. Each of us with our own particular perspective on life because of who we're wired up to be. Our office manager, Jamie Durding, has simplified this for me. Uh, she's, she maintains that there are four animals, and every one of us in this room is one of these four animals. Um, beavers are hardworking but moody. Retrievers are nurturing but procrastinators. Otters are fun-loving, but undisciplined. And lions are decisive, but unforgiving. On more occasions than I can count, my good friend Pastor Henning Guldhammer has pulled me aside when I've gotten worked up about something and said, Alex, it's all about personality. Because we all tend to want to hang out with those people that have the same strengths and the same weaknesses that we do. That's who we like to play with. Personality type silos. We must be careful. The fourth silo, perhaps the most insidious and most dangerous, just flat out selfishness. Well, the community is working hard to pull that rope. We sit off on the side in our own little chair. Show up late and leave early. Take as much as we can from the community and give as little as possible. Over there on the side, my tent, my tribe, my clan, my family, my people, my way of thinking, I'll just sit over here. And when we fail to study as hard as we can, when we fail to teach as hard as we can, when we fail to lead and serve as hard as we can, when we fail to give everything we've got to the community, that's us right there sitting in that little chair. It's dangerous. It's a dangerous place to be. This is Aiken, however. My tent, my tribe, my clan, my family, my department, my generation, my personality, me, myself, and I, and the movement, the text tells us, takes a huge hit. And they take it seriously because they know that that sort of selfishness can undermine everything. This is true. Selfishness kills campaigns. 
But this is even more true. Selflessness fuels revolutions. Selflessness fuels revolutions. The story of Jericho, not a particularly inspiring one. Is there any redemption for Jericho? I ask you this morning, is the word Jericho mentioned anywhere in the New Testament? Is it? Do you know? There's one reference in the book of Hebrews in a list which just described militarily what happened. But setting that aside, did you know that Jericho is mentioned three times in the New Testament with reference to three stories and Jesus is at the center of every one of those stories. Three and only three. You want to know what they are? Story number one, Luke 10. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. The story of the Good Samaritan. A story about selfish religious community unwilling to have hospitality for someone in need, beyond, someone beyond the pale. It's a story where Jesus says, you've got to open your heart. You need a much bigger vision of hospitality. This is the new vision for Jericho. Second story in Luke 18, we read as Jesus approached Jericho. A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And the people say to him, Shut up, be quiet, calm down, blind, begging man. A man who cannot see, a man who doesn't even know where he's going to get supper. Be quiet. And Jesus says, oh no. And he heals the man of his blindness. In this powerful story there in Jericho, Jesus says, oh, you need a much bigger vision of healing. Story number three, Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho. And was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Zacchaeus, the New Testament Achan, who was hoarding and hiding, taking from the poor, taking from everyone else, but by the power of Jesus and his spirit, Zacchaeus has a massive transformation. His heart is opened. And he starts to pour his resources back into the community. Oh, I ask you this morning, has Jericho been redeemed? Look at what Jesus did. Big hospitality, big healing, big generosity. Oh, yes, selflessness. This sort of thing fuels the revolution of Jesus. Powerful stuff. I know that many of you in this community have read or are currently reading Boys in the Boat by Daniel James Brown. I'm reading it now. It's a Pacific Northwest story. It's a story about the University of Washington, a Depression-era story about nine boys who come from working-class backgrounds, loggers and farmers and shipyard workers, nine boys, who against all odds 
as oarsmen in the eight-oar rowing competition against all expectations. Defeat the teams in the eastern part of the United States, defeat Great Britain, and in the 1936 Olympics, pictured here, go on under the nose of Hitler to bring home the gold. It's a powerful story of individuals who discover what it means to be about team. The shipbuilder, the builder of the boat, George Yeoman Pocock, has some important things to say about the boat, particularly to a boy named Joe Rance. I wanted to read to you some of the language used by the boat builder, the coaches, and the commentary of the author. I think it will help soak the gospel message in this morning. Pocock says to Joe Rance, he suggested that Joe think of a well-rowed race as a symphony and himself as just one player in the orchestra. If one fellow in an orchestra was playing out of tune or playing at a different tempo, the whole piece would naturally be ruined. That's the way it was with rowing. When you get the rhythm in an eight, it's pure pleasure to be in. It's not hard work when the rhythm comes, that swing as they call it. I've heard men shriek out with delight when that swing came in and ate. It's a thing they'll never forget as long as they live. The challenges they had faced together had taught them humility, the need to assume their individual egos for the sake of the boat as a whole. And humility was the common gateway through which they were able now to come together and begin to do what they had not been able to do before. The seeds of redemption lay not just in perseverance, hard work, and rugged individualism. They lay in something more fundamental, the simple notion of everyone pitching in and pulling together. What mattered more than how hard a man rode was how well everything he did in the boat harmonized with what the other fellows were doing. And a man couldn't harmonize with his crewmates unless he opened his heart to them. The word of the Lord this morning, may we open our hearts to one another. For we in this valley are a part of that great campaign to be a blessing to the nations. Amen.